Hello, and thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from ASI Incorporated and Merkin Company Incorporated. Our experts will discuss immune checkpoint inhibitors for advanced endometrial cancer, including therapeutic rationale and their safety and efficacy as single agents and in combination therapies. This is part one of a two-part series. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the show notes. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Robert Coleman, Chief Scientific Officer with U.S. Oncology Research and Co-Director of GOG Partners. Dr. Coleman is also President-Elect of the International Gynecologic Cancer Society. And Dr. Bradley Monk, Professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and the Creighton University School of Medicine in Phoenix, Arizona and Medical Director of the U.S. Oncology Research Network's Gynecologic Program. Dr. Monk, along with Dr. Coleman, is also Co-Director of GOG Partners, and Dr. Monk is a member of the Board of Directors of the GOG Foundation. Dr. Coleman will lead our discussion. Welcome, everybody. This is... uh... Uh, pleasure to join you today, um, and I'm, I'm so happy to discuss this topic on endometrial cancer and the role of immunotherapy, and I'm joined by my good friend and world-renowned expert, Dr. Bradley Monk from Arizona, uh, who is a professor at Creighton University, uh, and together we're going to walk through immunotherapy with, uh, in, with respect to endometrial cancer, how that management is now entering into the clinical domain, what we're doing uh, to uh, address these unique patient subgroups that are starting to emerge, and we're gonna get into that today as well, uh, and some of the future directions that are ongoing now with uh, clinical trials with uh, immunotherapy in the space of endometrial cancer. So it's quite an exciting uh, time to be uh, to addressing this. And so uh, let me just say hi, hi to Brad, and Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, it's my pleasure to be with you. This is a very important topic. Thank you. The subject of today is endometrial cancer. And you know, as you know, uh, you know, it's just looking in the clinic, you, we know that the experience with advanced endometrial cancer is actually fairly limited at, you know, across the domain. Obviously, it's something we see frequently in gynecologic oncology clinics. But I would imagine that across the United States, the endometrial cancer, at least advanced stage endometrial cancer and recurrent endometrial cancer is probably not a big footprint of most oncologists' offices. So I thought maybe it might be good to maybe just step back to set the groundwork for this um, as, you know, what endometrial cancer, what we're talking about when we talk about advanced endometrial cancer and, um, you know, what's the kind of the typical patient that we see who might have metastatic, uh, endometrial cancer. Maybe you could just give us like just a kind of a thumbnail view of what the pa- patient might look like in, the, in an office. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I think we all recognize as gynecologic oncologists, you and me together, that this is the most common gynecologic cancer. Uh, almost three times as many ovarian cancers, 66,000 cases this year. Wow, yeah. right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's almost uh, the second most deadly. Uh, cervical cancer is about 14,000. Endometrial cancer is about 13,000. 
Mm-hmm. So, so this, is, this is the only gynecologic cancer that is increasing in prevalence and incidence. Right. So as you know, and I think we all know that, yeah, that that early stage disease uh, presenting with uh, postmenopausal bleeding is the norm where five-year survival rates are 95%. But there is these other patients who either present with advanced disease or recurrent disease where it's highly lethal. So uh, this field is rapidly evolving with your leadership. I want to thank you. And uh, we uh, we have some new exciting medicines for these patients. So that's why we're here. You and I both have been working with GOG for years, um, and you know I have to acknowledge you know the contributions of investigators for those over those many decades about how we kind of established chemotherapy and endometrial cancer. I think many people felt like there were very few options. Maybe just walk us through a little bit about you know where, how chemotherapy got to be you know the current standard of care. I think most people recognize this platinum, but you know obviously there was this iterative uh, development through GOG over the years to kind of help establish what that standard was. And um, I thought maybe just maybe just give it, you know, just a high level overview of how we got to where we are now and why that sets the groundwork for the kind of the next step. Yeah, we've had three active cytotoxic chemotherapies, platinum, doxorubicin, and paclitaxel. So we went from a platinum doxorubicin doublet and then ultimately a triplet, if you can imagine, mm-hmm. uh, right. cisplatin, doxorubicin, and, and paclitaxel, and then compared it in a non-inferiority sort of approach uh, yeah. GOG209, which showed that carboplatin paclitaxel is the most tolerable and most active and is today the global standard, you know, delivered every three weeks. The doses are not quite clear. I think the right. paclitaxel dose is generally 175 milligrams uh, per meter squared over three hours. But the carboplatin dose is challenging because many of these patients have had prior radiation with limited bone marrow reserve and a risk of thrombocytopenia. So somewhere yeah. between an AUC of four or six, and if I say it's four or six, it sounds like it's five. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think uh, the point you mentioned about prior pelvic radiation is really important. And, uh, and I, I know I at least will take that into consideration in picking a dose. That's a, so that's a really great point. Let me ask you, you know, um, for years, you know, we also looked at hormone therapy. And, uh, you know, there were a number of phase two trials that looked at hormone therapy. What's your experience with hormone therapy in this, in this disease? And why would it work? Or why wouldn't it work? Yeah, so if you recall, we tried to do hormonal therapy versus chemotherapy, and we couldn't yeah. overcome our biases. But there are these <laughs> subsets of patients, pre- predominantly endometrioid, where the estrogen receptor is overexpressed. And uh, that creates an opportunity. Uh, generally well differentiated, although not always. The most common hormone regimens have been, you know, tabaxifen, megesterol, uh, megesterol alone, yeah. or even what you've championed. In fact, maybe you could comment on it, this idea of uh, an aromatase inhibitor and an mTOR inhibitor, because endometrial cancer is the most common cancer with a perturbation of the PI3, AKT, P10 uh, pathway. That's pretty good, right? Uh, Letrozole yeah. everolimus? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was an interesting study. I have to credit my our good friend uh, Brian Slomovitz for championing that through. You know, which actually started as a, as a uterine spore project as a single agent at looking at uh, mTOR inhibition in endometrial cancer. But you know, we learned that because of this dual access, and you know, the, uh, as we uh, also gained information from the breast cancer um, uh, space, we're looking at endocrine resistance and, and mechanisms that can over overcome endocrine resistance. We learned that there is a lot of crosstalk between the uh, endocrine pathway and the PI3 kinase pathway, as you just mentioned. And so this kind of dual targeting approach uh, kind of got birthed out of that. And we, when we did the single arm phase two, we were amazed actually with the amount of responses that we were seeing in some of these patients. So yeah, that's a, 
that's a, that'll be a whole nother line of discussion. We'll have to have a whole podcast on that <laughs> coming up. But that's my go-to hormonal regimen is letrozole everolimus, yeah. I think, as you mentioned. And the ideal patient is endometroid, yep. maybe grade one, maybe P10 loss, and, but certainly a, a, a slow-growing you know, lung metastasis sort of patient. The patient right. that needs help now should get carboplatin paclitaxel where the response rates are north of 50%. Absolutely. Great, great point. So, um, so I'm going to use that as a segue into kind of the next step as we start thinking about how immunotherapy fits here. You know, you mentioned this PI3 kinase pathway, and, you know, I think we've now learned with all of our abilities to do uh, next-gen sequencing, tumor sequencing in endometrial cancer, and also the relationship of endometrial cancer to Lynch syndrome, you know, we've kind of like pivoted a bit, right? We, you know, we started with this like type one, type two, and we kind of put clinical characteristics around that, um, different, you know, potential outcomes, uh, prognostic values, but we've gone a lot deeper, right? How do we get to where we are now with all this molecular uh, information? Well, I, I think uh, it's, it's becoming a molecular staging world. So, yeah. um, you know, in, in yeah, other solid tumors, that's, that's what we do. Um, as you recall, the Cancer Genome Atlas, the TCGA, uh, classified endometrial cancers into four groups. Uh, you know, the ultra-mutated uh, poly tumor, very yeah. rare, but, but a good prognosis. Not, they're not MSI high, interesting, yeah. although that, their mutational burden is, you know, 100 or so. So poly, number two, hyper-mutated or MSI high. Uh, number three, the low copy number or MS stable, non-MSI mm-hmm. high, non-mismatch repair deficient. And then this, what we call copy number high, which encompasses basically all the serous types. So poly, MSI high, non-MSI high, and low copy number, which is the serous tumors. And, and that's really better uh, from a, than a histologic subtyping. I think yeah. uh, clinical stage is good for where the tumor is, but molecular right. stage is good for what the tumor is. So you right. have where it is and what it is, and together that creates a decision-making opportunity. Right. And so you mentioned this MSI high. So what is that, I guess? And, and you know, how, how are we finding these patients uh, in the clinic? Uh, you know, or like, you know, if you take a patient to the OR and, and do an endometrial cancer staging, you know, what do you tell the pathologist to do or what are they doing now routinely? Yeah. So I think our, our listeners recall the 2015 Nobel Prize on DNA repair. Part of that was these uh, microsatellite editing uh, these deficient proteins, which are characterized at the germline hereditary level at Lynch syndrome, as you mentioned, and then at the epigenetic level, really just flat out the DNA repair enzymes are missing, the microsatellites are lacking uh, edits, and there's neoantigens, and those are MSI high patients. So you can look at those microsatellites with PCR, uh, mm-hmm. you can do a next-gen sequencing assay and sort of look at the mutational burden, the mutations per megabase, or you can take a more practical approach is what we, what we do in the clinic, which is recommended by our societies to just do IHC for the four proteins. Mm-hmm. And if they're missing, then the, then the patient is MS, uh, mismatch repair deficient, which is the opposite side of the coin, MSI high. And, and then depending on which protein is missing, can be pivoted to a genetic counseling, uh, Lynch syndrome investigation, and that can sort of be triaged with promoter uh, high promoter of MSH, yeah. Uh-huh. So I think it's important for our listeners to know that you know these are these these testing, uh, although it's 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 pretty routine now in the United States, um, and yeah. and different labs have different way to do it. Um, 
But when we find these things, we obviously know that the tumor is deficient. And so because we mentioned that uh, a proportion of these patients, probably somewhere between 2 and 8% will have Lynch syndrome, you know, we have to check to make sure this is not just a methylation event, but this is an event solidly in the tumor as opposed to one in the germline. So some of these patients will ultimately, if we check for, um, you know, for promoter methylation, that we would then, if that's, if that's absent, then we think this is actually a true germline um, alteration. And those patients need to be uh, referred for genetics counseling. Would you say that these classifications that we've come up from a molecular standpoint actually have prognostic implications? Uh, I mean, you mentioned- No, no yeah. question. The poly have a good, a better uh, a prognosis, and maybe even the MSI high have a little bit better prognosis, stage for stage. Yeah. So you know, I think that you know our friends overseas uh, have tried to, you know, try to work this kind of prognostic algorithm from. It's not exactly the same as the TCGA as you mentioned, but they're working it into a, a trial. I think they call it the Rainbow Trial. That's uh, mm -hmm. um, that where they're actually doing randomized trials based on a molecular classification of what kind of what you just mentioned it's i think it's quite interesting now that we're starting to look at this disease so much differently than the old type one type two right you know what they do they take this copy number high which encompasses the serous types and really yeah. label that a p53 mutated tumor that's right. probably a, a better because we don't really look at copy number but you can right. look at p53 and a p53 mutated tumor is a high-grade serous, which interestingly, there are some P53 mutated endometrioid tumors, which probably should be moved over to that right. serous subset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and before I leave this topic, um, I just wanted to maybe just touch base briefly on something you mentioned about the TMB. Why is that important? And is that a different way to look at this, at this, uh, at this disease? We talked about the four subgroups that came out of the, out of the mm -hmm. uh, TCGA, but now we've got this TMB thing going on. Well, and I sort of alluded to it that the poly tumors are not mismatch repair deficient, but have a large number of neoantigens where immunotherapy would be very impactful. So TMB encompasses not only all MSI high tumors, but gets the ones that also have a high neoantigen load, but are right. not MSI high. So, so TMB in cervical cancer, for example, uh, cervical cancer are almost all mismatch repair proficient that have about a 10% TMB high greater than 10 um, uh, mutations per megabase, megabase, which is the threshold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I yeah. actually prefer TMB. The problem with TMB is that you have to do next-gen sequencing, which is expensive and slow. So, so you, you kind of have to sort of you know, integrate what works for you. And in endometrial cancer specifically, IHC is the most practical and yeah, is, again, recommended by the guidelines and should yeah. be done in every patient. Yeah. At diagnosis. At diagnosis. Yeah. That's great. So let's, um, um, you know, we, we touched on this base and I think a, a bit about the, uh, about the, you know, why this might be important. Um, and obviously now with, uh, immunotherapies, uh, being, uh, with at least for pembrolizumab being improved now, uh, in two, you know, essentially tumor agnostic or tumor, uh, nonspecific situations based on molecular characteristics that you just mentioned, one being TMB, one being, uh, MSI status. So can you maybe talk to us about how we got here with uh, single-agent pembrolizumab um, and, uh, you know, where we are in, in the development of that? I think that might be of interest to everybody. Yeah, I think you remember in early 2017, the Oncology Center of Excellence was formed. Yeah. And that, created, that created sort of a multi-tumor approval process, and there have been a number. The most impactful is MSI high single-agent pembrolizumab in that pivotal 
149 patients, which has about a response rate of 40%, very durable, where the median uh, at six months was not met. So that was really the first impactful move of the uh, Oncology Center of Excellence came to us in, in, in mid-2017. And everybody in oncology knows it. Everybody in oncology <laughs> exactly, knows exactly. it. Exactly. You know, in, t- in 2017, yeah. it was interesting. Three years later here in 2020, it's not. We're all doing it. And as you know, <laughs> we've pivoted. We've pivoted yeah. to, to TMB High, which basically even expands the opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty remarkable, um, and and you know that. So we uh, explain a little bit about pembrolizumab. Is it under an accelerated approval or is it a full approval? Um, it's available, uh, but in terms of its regulatory action, where are we with it? Yeah, that was an accelerated approval. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure if it's a full approval in endometrial cancer because it is a full approval in colorectal cancer. Right. Uh, and so, I, as you know, it's an opportunity in MSI high now frontline for, for colorectal yeah. cancer. So I, I'm not really sure when you have a, a, a biomarker rather than <laughs> a tumor, <laughs> that if you get full approval in one tumor, if it counts for full approval for all the tumors. Exactly. But, but it's an established concept. Uh, and, uh, and as you know, in MSI high CRC, we also have at Nevo uh, ipilimumab. Yeah. So, so there, there are a number of opportunities in the MSI high subset, particularly in endometrial cancer, and now in the TMB high. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Because it's, it's just it's it's great news for our patients, right? So this is in recurrent patients. Um, second but line. As you, yeah, second line, and, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of interest in saying, well, shoot, there's a lot of activity. This is actually better than we saw any of our second line chemotherapies, including you know Pacifaxel mm-hmm. and Platinum. And now they're in the frontline setting. So how far are we in this, uh, in this process of looking at immune checkpoint inhibitors and frontline uh, metastatic uh, or first recurrence patients? Well, there are a number of opportunities to uh, either add a checkpoint inhibitor to chemotherapy, which you're familiar right. with, uh-huh. or to replace chemotherapy. I just told you that yeah. in CRC that, that they've replaced yep. chemotherapy. That's right. in the MSI high group. But we have a, a, you know, this Pembril and Vatinib combination, which we should probably talk about. Yeah. Now yeah. FDA-approved second-line accelerated approval. But we're trying to also move that front line to see yeah. if it's better than chemotherapy. That study is called LEAP001. Yeah, so that's great. So we've got these ongoing trials now that are looking at the addition of, uh, of immune checkpoint inhibitors to uh, chemotherapy in the space where chemotherapy is already approved. And because we're so excited about this, we're also now looking at it in combination with radiation therapy. As we know, there's uh, the abscopal effect has been defined for decades, um, but now we're starting to really look at this because of uh, uh, the ability and expansion of, of use of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So now we're moving it even into the adjuvant setting. And there's a number mm-hmm. of clinical trials ongoing right now that are either adding it to radiation or chemoradiation, adding it to adjuvant therapy following curative intent, or adding it as maintenance therapy in patients who have been treated for curative intent. So this is, this is an unbelievable transition in a really short period of time after spending decades defining pacotaxel and carboplatinum. Right, I know. <laughs> so, well, so well I, the way I like to say it, there are four ways to make a checkpoint inhibitor better. And you said add radiation number yeah. one. I said add chemotherapy number two. I also mentioned CTLA-4 and then fourth of EGF. And the pembrolizumab right. and vatinib opportunity really leverages that mechanism of resistance, that anti-VEGF opportunity, because VEGF probably is immunosuppressive. Yeah. And if we can knock down the immunosuppression, then we can let the pembrolizumab or other checkpoint inhibitor come in and mop up and stimulate the immune system 
to destroy the tumor even when the neoantigen load is low. So right. this is a wonderful opportunity for non-MSI high or mismatch repair proficient tumors, which is the majority of second line endometrial cancers. Exactly. So MSI high was great, but it was maybe 20 to 30%. But right. now we have pembrolizumab for every patient, second line. Pembro right. alone for MSI high and pembrolimbatinib in, in non-MSI high. Fantastic. Maybe we could just dig in a little bit into uh, the pembrolimbatinib story. Um, we initially saw uh, you know, a Lancet Oncology paper uh, a couple years ago. Um, it was updated just recently and JCO. Um, we've seen several um, uh, presentations. How excited are we about this? <laughs> well, uh, we actually let, let how excited you. you are, but because I know you're all excited about all these great new advances. <laughs> I am excited, but but, but yeah. I remember I remember the day. Yeah, September seventeenth, two thousand nineteen. Yeah. That was a good day for my patients because when my patients develop resistance to carboplatin and paclitaxel and are not MSI high, MSI high, right? They were going to die soon. Oh, yeah, and, no and there options, was this right. Like, Nothing. No options. There was idea. Well, if the if the platinum freeable is long, we'll give them platinum paclitaxel. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So on that day, and I remember the day, September 17, 2019, yeah. there was an accelerated approval, uh, which showed a 38% response rate, and we had CRs. We yeah. had 10% CRs, and the median duration of response was not met, but 69% were progression-free for longer than six months. So not only did it shrink tumors, but it was durable. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll, I think we're gonna have another podcast about the tolerability issue, but this is a very right. important day for my patients. And I've had patients on this regimen for more than a year. Why more than a year? Because that's as long as it's been available. Exactly. And so this has really been transformational, unprecedented, the biggest, the biggest achievement in endometrial cancer since the hysterectomy. <laughs> that's a pretty big, that's a pretty good statement. I, I think that, I think that this is, you know, a non-chemotherapy regimen that is, that, that has this kind of activity in a subgroup of patients that we have very few options uh, is, I think is really remarkable. Um, we are very excited about this. There's no doubt about it. Um, for me, seeing activity NMS stable patients was was a big win, but also seeing responses in serous tumors right. was also seemed to be a big win in this regimen, right? So, in in an unplanned analysis, the serous uh, response rate is actually higher. Yeah. See what happens in the endometrioid tumors? Some of those are MSI high, and those have been removed. Right. So, so, so you can, when you compare the endometrioid and the pembrolimbatinib non MSI high to the serous. You, you, you've really sort of sterilized the endometrioid because you've taken the good ones out. Right. So, the, but, so, so said another way, the serous tumors have about a 50% response rate. And that's this really, really remarkable. Post-chemo, right. this is big right. deal. Right. And so this has then obviously led it to the uh, development of uh, you know, the frontline trial that you mentioned, the LEAP trial, mm -hmm. which is ongoing. So this activity, as you mentioned, um, seeing it, the long duration of response, seeing the objective responses, seeing complete responses, and then seeing it across the spectrum of histologies, uh, very remarkable. Um, you know, I think that one of the questions that comes up in this treatment paradigm is, you know, should we be going back to our chemotherapy uh, that we used before? Gosh, we do that so often in ovarian cancer. You know, is this, do we need to adopt the same kind of strategy as uh, in endometrial cancer as we've seen in, 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 uh, in other tumor types? Yeah, thank you for that. So, you know, we as providers, and we really want to help our patients. And when we, 
when we have an agent that works well frontline and we have nothing really that works at recurrence, mm-hmm. really in a, in a well-intending sort of approach, we're like, well, let's just use it again. Yeah, and, right. and we, we, we do that both in second-line cervical cancer and second-line endometrial cancer. Right. And, and again, that, that comes from ovarian cancer. The, the, the difference is it actually works in ovarian cancer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and, it, and it doesn't work in, in, in endometrial or cervical cancer. When you have uh, uh, an agent or a combination, uh, uh, and you'll see, you know, the, the audience will see some of your work at ESMO here coming up in cervical cancer, uh, where the response rates are much higher than existing medicines. You know, this, this combination is way better than any retreatment with carboplatin or paclitaxel could be, no matter right. what the platinum-free interval is. And, and so it's, you know, there, there's no alopecia, there's no neuropathies. Mm-hmm. We need to talk more about the adverse reactions, but this is, this is pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, let me, before we close out, I just want to maybe uh, bring out to the, uh, to the audience, you know, that this field has obviously expanded. You know, what, obviously when one, one of these class agent gets approved, there's obviously a lot of interest from, we know there's multiple uh, checkpoint inhibitors uh, that are in development across oncology. Many of them are entering into the clinical domain. And I think we're seeing the same thing in endometrial cancer. I just wondered, maybe you could just touch high, on a high level, you know, what kinds of other immune checkpoint inhibitors are only in this space and, uh, and how are they being developed? Well, as you know, we have six uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors in the clinic. Um, not all are being studied in endometrial cancer, but most right. of them are. Mm-hmm. And, and there are new ones, particularly the GSK compound and the Insight compound, which are not approved, which there is a real opportunity in endometrial cancer. So those trials right. are enrolling. Um, the, the beauty with those is that both the, you know, the GSK and Insight have a broad pipeline. So they're trying to leverage their pipeline and some novel combinations and and, and as we already said, Pembrolin Vatinib is a novel combination, but there are other novel combinations beyond VEGF that really could be impactful. And, and, and patients are, are, are now eligible for third-line treatment. Right. So we've said, look, front-line carboplatin, paclitaxel, second-line Pembrolin MSI high, second-line Pembrolin Vatinib if you're not. Well, now what's the third-line option? So we are now creating an opportunity in third-line where heretofore it didn't exist because the patients were not living that long. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, know. You, mentioned, you mentioned this at the very beginning that this instance is increasing, but the prevalence is also increasing. And the reflection yeah. of prevalence is the fact that they are getting third line therapy and they're That's getting right, fourth line therapy. And so, so we're very excited about the development of, uh, of our new assets and, um, and the combinations. And we're going to be dealing with, you know, prior exposure in our future trials. So please, if you're out there, please support these trials. This is how we move the needle. We're so excited that we've made so much progress today through, uh, through the participation in these trials. Well, you know, Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is a great discussion. I think we covered a lot of material. Um, there is no doubt that this is one of the most exciting areas in, in oncology. Um, we're fortunate to, to have the entire oncology community helping us to define these spaces as we learn more about the biology of these diseases and how we can implement across different tumor specialties, agents that seem to be working under similar molecular characteristics. And as that knowledge grows and that footprint grows, you know, the, the, the winners here are our patients. So I wanna thank you for your efforts on this process. I know you've been deeply involved in development. Um, uh, in many of these programs, we're so happy that they've been successful uh, and that we have these new options. So thanks once again for, uh, for joining me and uh, looking forward to talking in the near future. Thanks, Rob. Good seeing you. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. And be sure to join us for the second part of this series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial2, where doctors Monk and Coleman will continue their discussion with a focus on selecting the right patient for immune checkpoint inhibitors.